Hi, I'm Dennis Hester, and I'm the pastor here at First Baptist Church Watauga, and we are grateful that you have tuned in to listen to these messages, either through our podcast or on our website. And as you listen to these, our prayer is that you would hear the Lord speak to you from His Holy Word. If you're interested in learning more about the church, you can get on our website at fbcwatauga.org. From there, there's a place where you can plan a visit, you can learn more about our beliefs. You can also request prayer through the prayer request page. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. The most important thing that I'd communicate to you is as you listen to God's Word, that you find a place to get plugged into a local congregation, whether it's here at First Baptist or another local church where you live. If you'd like information or would like us to help you find a church home, uh, we'd love to talk to you about that. And you can contact us through our Facebook page. So God bless you as you listen to His Word, and may the Lord encourage you in your walk. So today's text is uh, a quite challenging text. It's one of those, uh, as we continue to walk through James chapter five, or James, we come to chapter five. And it's one of those texts that a pastor would love to just say, you know, let's just skip that one and let's move on to the next one. James chapter five, James addresses very directly those who are rich. In fact, the first five words in our translation, come now you rich people. The problem with this text for many of us is as soon as we hear those words, we go, well, this sermon doesn't apply to me because I ain't rich. And so we immediately begin to well, start thinking about something else and, and think, well, pastor, you know, this one's really not for me today. But before you do that, I, I want to challenge you with a couple things. First, I want you to hear what James says in the first three verses because James is going to outline for us what it means to be rich in material goods. So we'll read that in a moment. And I, I, So before you turn me off, at least give me the first few minutes. But also hear this. Did you know that the median income throughout the world, which the median is not the average. It means half of the people, this is their average, how, that, that, this is the, half, the household income of Half the people in the United States are, are in the world have make less than this a year, half make more than this a year. Median income, the last time that one of these exhaustive studies was done was about seven years ago. The median worldwide income was $9,733. Estimates are now that it's somewhere around $10,000. So if your family income, that's not one person, if your family income is around $10,000 right now, you make more than half of the people in the world. Think about that. Now, that even gets more challenging for us who live in the United States because some economists, those who study poverty in particular around the world, suggest that you should take into any income that is extra sustenance that comes to you, whether it's from the government, from any outside source, and so, if you factor in, for those of us who live in the United States of America, food stamps and health care and housing assistance and other factors, everybody, basically every single family in the United States is above the median income of the rest of the world. Everybody in the U.S., even on families who are on welfare have more than 
half of the world, and significantly more. That's why the poorest of the poor who are on welfare that don't even have jobs in the United States can, can afford $200 pair of tennis shoes and walk around with cell phones in their hands. Because in reality, one of the greatest measures of poverty worldwide now, or one of the greatest influences or characteristics of poverty is where you live. One of the best studies I saw on this as I was studying this week it looked at poverty is related to access to health care, poverty is related to access to food, poverty is related to, to access to housing, shelter, clean water, uh, relating it to uh, uh, effective sewage systems, those kind of things. The bottom line that the study found out was the number one determination about whether or not you were going to live in true poverty or not was where you were born. And if you were born in the United States of America or a handful of other countries, your, poverty, your bottom level was higher than most of the rest of the world and your top level went far beyond. So for instance, if you lived in one of the poorest of the poor nations in the world, even if you became rich in that nation, you probably would not even be able to measure up to where the median income of the United States person was. You see what I mean? So the bottom line is, when we hear James say, you rich, <laughs> we need to be very careful because when we look around this room, unless you're homeless in the United States, living homeless with no access to income, you're gonna be rich in the world's view. That's amazing to us. It, it, it's not unusual when we did the, uh, the Compassion International studies, one of the things that we learned was that one third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. A third of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. That's, we can't even fathom that. Our, our family living on $60 a week. Can't even imagine it. I mean, $60 a month, I'm sorry. We can't even, can't even get there with our heads. So the, the bottom line is that all of us, when compared to the rest of the world, are wealthy. So follow me here. James chapter five. Let's hear what James has to say about some of the measures of people who have enough or are wealthy or a level of decadence. James 5, one. Come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in these last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on this earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous. Who does not resist you? Well, I told you you weren't gonna like it. <laughs> that is a hard Difficult, challenging, and James, that's where he ends this issue. That's where he stops talking, but he goes on to something else next week. So he doesn't really 
give us a context of how we move forward from here, how we deal with it. He's just pointing out an issue that his church had. Now, he's dealt with poverty and wealth in another way in James chapter two, when he talked about how we ought to treat people the same, whether they're wealthy or whether they're poor. And, and, and there he's speaking to a church largely, as we talked about then, that probably the church people fit somewhere in the middle class and they need to be careful of how they treated people differently based on how much money they had. And, and we talked about that under this idea of, of not to discriminate and not to play favorites from James chapter two. So he ha this isn't new that he's dealt with this issue of poverty and the wealthy. But in this passage, he just comes straight at it. And he says, come now you rich people. Well, who are these rich people that he's talking about? There's a couple characteristics that we see here that are, I call them signs of decadence. Signs that you have more than enough. First sign is this. You've got more clothes in your closet than you can wear. Your clothes, James says, are moth-eaten. You have so many clothes in your closet that you can't wear them all in a week. You can't wear them all in a month. You have more clothes than what you, you've got so many clothes in there that some of them hang on the hanger until the malls eat them because you don't even use them. You don't even wear them. Uh, uh, my wife likes to shop at a, uh, at a store called GW Boutique. That sounds like a real high-end place, doesn't it? I mean, anything is, that says Boutique, you know. Well, what it stands for is Goodwill Boutique. <laughs> this is the place where people that bring their stuff to Goodwill, their best stuff goes to the boutique, and they sell it for more than what they would at the regular Goodwill store. And so periodically, it, she'll come home with, with a dress or with a blouse or with pants that, that they might be $70, $80, item of clothing that still has the tag on it because it's never been worn before. Somebody bought it put it in their closet, figured out after a period of time that they'd never worn it and took it to goodwill and gave it away. And they had so many clothes in their closet they didn't even realize that they had this nice piece of clothing in there. One of the challenges that I have when I read this text was this phrase right here. If I have more T-shirts in my closet than what I can wear in a week, I probably am rich in the eyes of the rest of the world. Majority, I don't know that about a majority, a large portion of people in the world that I have met, that I've run into when I was in India or in Nicaragua, in Peru, many people don't have closets full of clothes. Many have two, two shirts, two pairs of pants, two pairs of underwear, so they can wash one while they wear the other one. If you have more clothes in your closet than you can wear, you're rich in James's eyes. If you have more food in your pantry or in your refrigerator than you can eat before it goes bad, you're rich in James's eyes. I remember a while back, I mean, this is when I was pastoring at May, helping an older deacon and his wife. They had some 
something that had broken, they had some plumbing issues behind their pantry. So they had to take everything out of their pantry. They found canned goods in their pantry that were in the back of that pantry from when they moved into the house 15 years before. They had so much food in their pantry that they couldn't eat it all, and a lot of it had gone bad. Now, I'll confess, periodically, we have to go through our refrigerator and look at the expiration dates on stuff and throw out food. That's a sign that we have too much to eat. If we have food that we store until it's no longer good, we're rich. Most people, and and this is a truth, most people in this world have enough food for their next meal and maybe for the next day. Yesterday, we, I, I smoked some meat that was in my freezer and we had the kids and the grandkids over and we had a wonderful uh, meal and celebration together. But you know what ended up happening at the end of the meal? We had to bring out the Tupperware dishes, put up all the extra food and put it in the refrigerator because we had leftovers you understand that a lot of our world doesn't understand the concept of leftovers? And far too often, those leftovers will stay in our refrigerator until they grow mold. They'll go bad. Because we have so much food. We are wealthy compared to the majority of the world. That's a sign of wealth. And we have more clothes than what we can wear, and we have more food than what we can eat before it goes bad. We're wealthy. Third, some of you, he says, have gold and jewelry that you don't even wear. You have gold and silver that gets corroded. Because if you have a jewelry box and you have stuff in there that you never get to to put on, then you probably have enough jewelry that you're rich. Some of us store up treasure for the end days. Now this one's a little bit more complicated because there is some wisdom in preparing for retirement or preparing for a time when you no longer can work and you're gonna have to be dependent upon what you have set aside. But James says there's some of us that that we go to that extreme, and and he's going to flesh this out a little bit, that you've stored up treasure for the last days, and those days are never even going to come. Now, last night, or, or last Sunday, we talked about a parable that Jesus shared about a rich man who, he had barns, and he had barns filled with, with good stuff. He had his barns full already, and he had this incredible harvest, and he's, he had so much income, and he had so much wealth that he didn't, his barns weren't big enough. So he decided what he was going to do was tear down his barns, build new barns, and then fill those barns up with all of his goods, and... Jesus said, God looked at him and said, you fool. You don't even know that tonight your soul will be required of you. You had enough already, essentially, is what Jesus is saying. But, but you decided that you had to have more. And so the rich man says, I'm just going to sit back and I'm going to be at ease and I'm never going to have to work again. And, and I'm just going to enjoy the bounty of all this good stuff. That's a sign that you're rich. 
That's a sign that you're living in abundance and living in luxury, and it's a warning that we get from God. So, verse four down then, he begins to deal with specific issues of the heart related to our wealth. So these are signs that we're, that we're wealthy. If you have more clothes than what you need to wear, you have more food than what you can eat, you have more jewelry than what you can put on before it gets corroded and gets tarnished, and you have an excess built up for the, for the last days. Where the real struggle comes in for James then is what you do with that. Look at verse four. Look, the pay that you withheld from your workers, you mowed, who mowed your fields, cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. So the bottom line is, James is going to say, the problem is your stingy hearts. First, you, didn't, you got to your point of wealth on the back of those who worked for you. You were so stingy that you did not pay a fair wage to those who helped you gain that wealth. See, I've, I've seen wealthy people who were very generous, but I've also seen those who got to where they were because they did it on the backs of others. Now, that can happen on an individual level. It can happen on a corporate level. You know, one of the issues of, of justice in our day is an outcry about multi-billionaires who have slave labor basically in China building their goods. That's an issue of society. He says, you didn't pay a fair wage. You got to where you were by not taking care of those who you used to get there. And so you didn't pay a fair wage. You know, many of us are not business owners that, that struggle with this issue, but but there's issue, this also applies to how we take care of those who serve us. Are you generous with, with the waiter or the waitress who serves your table? Are, are, are you generous with those who, who serve you when you go to, uh, to buy products? It has to do with an issue of the heart. And so James says, you didn't pay a fair wage, and the Lord of the harvest knows that. You had plenty but you were so stingy that you were willing to take care of those in need. Second, you lived a luxurious lifestyle. He says there in verse five, you lived luxuriously on this earth. You made sure that you had every material thing that you could have, that you brought together for yourself. One of the things that I mentioned a couple weeks ago was one of the, an issue that I've, that's hit me that I kind of struggle with a little bit is, is I've, I've learned that I can only sit in one room and watch one TV at a time. It doesn't matter how many TVs I have in the house, I can only watch one at a time. So at what point do we have excess in our lives? I can only drive one truck at a time. How many do I need? And I had a, a, a friend uh, in May whose uncle was a car collector went out to his, uh, he had these garages uh, out on his place in May. We went and, and he had a uh, 1955, 56, and 57 Ford Thunderbirds. He had, they were, they were convertibles. He had uh, soft tops for all of them. He had hard tops for a couple of them. Then you go out into another garage and you see his collection of pickup trucks. And he had another garage where he had his collection of Camaros. And all but one or two of them just had a layer of dust on them. How much do we need? And how much is luxury? 
and extravagance in our lives. You lived a luxurious lifestyle. In here, it's someone who is making sure that we have all the material things that we want, but we're not taking care of those around us. Third, he says, you're self-indulgent. You've made this about getting what you can, regardless of what it costs anybody else. You're indulging your every materialistic desire, whether it has to do with, with money or items or entertainment. You are making sure that you indulge everything that your materialistic person wants. You are self-indulgent. And then fourth, he says down in verse six, you are self-righteous. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous. Who does not resist you? You, you are self-righteous. You, you can't even see your sin because you're living in such a high place that you just look down on everybody else. And, and, and they're all below you. You're, you're righteous. And in fact, this, this infects Christianity to, to in the place where we begin to say, well, look how God's blessed me. I must be a little bit better than them out there. And that, that sense of self-righteousness, James condemns here. Now, what do we do with that? Because in, realistically, if I'm honest with you about this text, I have to be honest enough to say, you know, I struggle at times with wanting to indulge myself in stuff that I don't need. If you're to go look in my closet right now, it needs to be cleaned out. Got more clothes in there than what I need. We've got leftovers from last night, but we probably have leftovers from a previous meal and leftovers from another meal that if we don't eat them, we're gonna end up throwing out food. So what ought I do with that? James doesn't give us a lot of guidance. James really begins here by saying, weep and wail over your miseries. And so he, he calls us to a position of humility. He calls us to a position to recognize where we fall short and cry out to God over those. I wanna take you to 2 Corinthians chapter nine. Because 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a two chapters in 2 Corinthians that are a parenthetical statement. The majority of 2 Corinthians is Paul's uh, apostolic defense. He's defending his apostleship from a church that, that uh, has really had a hard time with him. But one of the things that he is doing is Paul has taken up a collection from the wealthy churches in Greece, so in the Macedonia and in that area. So as he goes on his last missionary journey, he's taken up a collection. And he's written ahead to these churches to ask them to prepare a collection because the church in Jerusalem is starving. They're, they're facing a horrible famine and, and people are dying. And he makes a connection for the church at Corinth, uh, essentially saying, look, the reason that you have the good news of Jesus Christ is because of what Jesus did in Jerusalem and that church has sent out the missionaries that you've heard the good news from. So you have opportunity for salvation because of what they've done. Now they're hurting and they need help. And so Corinth was a wealthy church. Corinth was on a major trade route. And so that church, in comparison to other churches, would have, would have had plenty in fact, would have had abundance. So Paul addresses that issue with them. How is that church, how should they deal with this? How should they see it? How should they approach it? 
And we're not going to look at all of that. It's two chapters where Paul deals with that. But I want to read in verse 10 down through uh, the end of the chapter. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look at five principles that we can pull out of this that teach us how we deal with our wealth, how we deal with the blessings that God's given us. Chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verse 10 says, Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So the first principle that you see threaded throughout Paul's statement, it's not just in these seven or eight verses I've read, but all of this, this section, is that for those who God has blessed with wealth, they should have gratitude. The first, the, the first thing that we ought to do is be grateful for what God has blessed us with. And in this passage, in verse 10, he says, you, for, now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food. Paul reminds them that the only reason that you have a good harvest is because God provided good seed for the sower. You know, the bottom line is, and this is something that we've talked about in here a lot, you and I have absolutely nothing materially that we don't owe thanksgiving to God for. You can make the argument, well, pastor, I studied hard, and I went to school, and I, I, I've achieved a level of education, and then I worked hard, and I've got this job, and I've made this money. But the bottom line is, you have absolutely no ability to study hard. You have no ability to go to work. You have no ability to stand and make money if God has not given you that ability. If he has not given you the health to do it, you could not add two plus two if God didn't give you a brain where you could add two plus two. If you were, if you were born with Down syndrome and weren't able to hold down a full-time job, you could not make enough money to become rich. And, and, and Down syndrome children are wonderful, loving, godly kids I'm not, but I'm just saying that if you're, if you're born with a disability of some type, if, if, to, if this week, if Monday, tomorrow, I was to catch COVID, and I was to be in the hospital on a ventilator, I could not stand in the pulpit and proclaim God's word to, to make a living. You, you're, you don't have tomorrow promised. Your health is not a promise. Your health is a gift. Every breath that we take is a gift of God. And, and if God doesn't give us health to earn a living, we can't earn a living. If God doesn't give good seed, you, make, you could go out and you could plant a, a thousand acres of peanuts, but if those peanuts are bad and they don't sprout, you'll never get a harvest. You could go out and plant a thousand acres of peanuts and they could be good seed, but if it doesn't rain, you'll never have a harvest. 
God is the one who blesses us with the ability even to have everything that we have. Our health is a blessing from God. It is a gift from God. And so the first thing that ought to be on our minds is gratitude for every breath we take, for every article of clothing, for, for every piece of meat that we're able to put into our mouths. Ultimately, they all come from the hand of God. And so the first principle that we ought to have, especially those of us who truly are wealthy and have been blessed by God, is we ought to have gratitude. Second, we need to have humility. And these two are intricately related in the verses that I've read here. Understanding that if it were not for God, I would have nothing. So I come humbly before him. I, even if necessary, I come weeping. And then we ought to come with repentant hearts. If in any way you identify like I do, as I struggled through this text on Monday, you identify with what James has to say and say, you know what, I really do have an abundance. Sometimes I have a bad attitude about it because I see somebody has more and I want more. Look, I, I know I'm blessed. If you can love something material, I love my truck. I really do. I bought it used, but I love my truck. But Friday night, I saw the ad for the new 2021 F-150 Limited. And I want to tell you, that thing is beautiful. That thing, you know the best thing that it has? It has a lot of good things. The best thing it has, it has lay-down seats that completely lay down, fold out flat. Bottom seat comes up back so that you can lay down and take a nap in it. I told Susan, I'd need that for my next trip to Wyoming. <laughs> I need that truck, right? Do I? See, sometimes my heart begins to betray me. And I'm not grateful for what I have because of what I see out there when I want more. And it's, it's from that that we need to repent. If, if, if you would... If you've been unkind to somebody who served you or an employee of yours or somebody that's worked for you, you have not paid them a fair wage, you need to repent. You need to come before the Lord. You need to pour out your heart and, and confess your sin before the Lord. So a third characteristic of, that, that we can take away from this is repentance. Weep and mourn, James says, over your sin. Even if you're wealthy, even if you're living luxuriously, especially if you're doing that on the backs of someone else. And then fourth, and I think that this is one of the most important things that we see, most important concepts we see in how Paul addresses wealth in, in 2 Corinthians in particular is generosity. We ought to be generous. Now Paul addresses tithing in another place. Paul addresses uh, giving to missions in another place. But the focus of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 is that we ought to be generous. You see that word used in verse 6. You see that word used several times here in the text that we read. 
that, that look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God. Paul says that when you're generous with what you have, you honor God. When you're generous with what you have, you, you cause people to want to give praise and glory to God. When, when you're generous, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, you can be generous. And when you're generous, it takes the focus off of you and it puts the focus on the Lord. I have seen wealthy people who are extremely, incredibly generous. Told the story earlier today of, of two pastors that are wealthy pastors. Whatever you believe about their doctrine, you know, that, that's between you and them. Uh, it's between them and God, really. But, but two of the pastors who are overly generous are, are pastors who made a ton of money on book deals. Uh, one of them, I, I heard him speak about this, was Rick Warren out at Saddleback in California. And, and he was talking about this, and he laughed about it. He said, you know, God had given me the privilege to write this book, and he talked about how he spent time alone in his study, locked away, writing this book, The Purpose Driven Life. And, and he said, that book made a lot of money. And he said, I'm telling you, it made a lot of money. There's another guy that I've read a lot of his books. I used to read them devotionally, uh, Max Licato, who is a Church of Christ pastor down in San Antonio, Texas, grew up out in West Texas. Both of those guys are pretty good models of generosity. See, both of those guys, when they got their book deals, they both did something very similar. I don't know if they did it exactly the same way, but this is how they went about it. They, they went to the church, and both of them are still at the churches that they start. So they went to the church, and they added up how much money the church had paid them in salary from the time that they started as the pastor there until they completed that book deal. And then they paid the church back all that money. And then they both committed that they were going to be reverse tithers. They were going to continue to serve. They weren't going to go sit in a, in, a, in a place of ease in a mansion somewhere. They were going to continue to serve the Lord at their church to continue to preach and, and to, to write their books and continue to lead the church, but they were gonna give 90% of their income to the church and live on 10%. Now, those are wealthy guys that show generosity. Now, you don't have to look far around here to find wealthy church leaders and pastors who live lives of luxury, who are self-indulgent, and make it all about themselves. I don't have to name names because y'all know who many of them are. Some of them was griping because he only had two jets and he needed a bigger jet a couple years ago when it was in the paper. How he was gonna raise money for the $66 million jet that he needed because his other two jets weren't enough. Those are the people that are gonna have to stand before God and answer for that. You can be wealthy and be generous. You can also be poor and be generous. When Katie was first born, uh, you know, of course, we were in the hospital, and, and I had just graduated from Howard Payne. Susan was still a Howard Payne student. We had very little money. We were having to spend months at a time in the hospital with her. And, and someone started, the, the community in Brownwood, uh, Texas started a uh, fund for her that was in a local bank and people would send money to that fund and that money from that fund was used to pay our utility bills so that we could stay with Katie. So our gas bill and our electric bill and those kind of things were being paid out of that trust fund. 
And uh, what would happen was uh, people from around the world even would, would write letters, and this is back before you had PayPal and Venmo and all that kind of stuff where you just send money electronically. And they'd write letters and put cash or check in there and send it to the bank. Well, the, any letter or card the bank would keep, and periodically, JJ, J. Biles, would go pick that up, and then she would bring that to us, whether we were in the hospital or at home. And I remember receiving very, a lot of very moving letters. One in particular I remember receiving, and I don't remember exactly how much was in it or exactly what it said. We still have these cards, many of them. But you could tell it was written by an elderly woman who in her card said that I'm a widow and I live on very little and uh, I wanted to, uh, this is all that I could give because it's all that was in my bank account right now. And of course you can imagine my heart just broke. I thought if I could find that lady I'd like to pay her back. Now I understand I don't have to do that because the Lord's going to take care of her. But you don't have to be wealthy to be generous. You can be generous whatever your level of income is. And that's what God is looking for. Is he's looking for someone who has a generous heart and a generous spirit and is willing to honestly look at these tough questions and say, how much do I need how much do I need? How much do I really need? And how much can I bless others with the blessings that God has given me? And then finally, the fifth principle here is realism. And that's kind of what I'm talking about in that. Realistically, how much do I need and, and, and how much matters? Realistically, I have eight to 10 decades to live on this earth. Most, the average lifespan now of the American ex, life expectancy is gonna be about 80 to 100 years. I, I don't mean I have that many left. I, mean, I have that many from the beginning, from 1967. So I don't wanna count up how many I have left. Uh, and the bottom line is, we have a limited number of days that, that the Lord is gonna bless us with on this earth. If we are fortunate, we might live to be 80 years old. We might live to be 100 years old. But in light of eternity, that hundred years is but a drop in the bucket. So when we realistically look at all of the blessings that we have in this life, all of the money, all of the stuff, all of the gifts that God has poured out upon us, when we realistically look at all of that in light of eternity, the value of eternity far outweighs all of the value of all of the stuff of all of the days that we'll have on this earth. So realistically, we have to ask that question, what matters? What is it that really matters? And so here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul gives us a hint because he has laid out all of this discussion about giving and, and uh, being generous and being grateful and having humility. And he comes down to this, but thanks be to God who has given us the indescribable gift. See, the indescribable gift that Paul's referring to is the gift of Jesus the gift that he sent his son to die on a cross so that we could have everlasting life. So no matter how much you, you have on this earth, none of it, even if you piled up all of the earth's goods, everything that you would collect, that you would collect from the day you're born until the day you die, all of that compared to the gift of eternal life that you have in Jesus Christ is nothing. It's but a drop in the bucket because God has already given you the indescribable gift. He has given you the opportunity. He's given you the gift of eternal life. 
Jesus phrased it this way when he challenged his disciples and he said, how much would you give up for your soul? How much is your soul worth? All of the world's goods, everything in the world, is your soul worth more than that? Well, when you look at realistically what all of this world's goods are worth, when you take your last breath on this earth and your first breath to face God in eternity, you come to the realistic understanding that all of the, this world's goods, no matter how rich you are, is incomparable. You can't compare it to the gift that God's given you in Jesus Christ. So wealth, all of the wealth of this world can't even be compared to the indescribable gift that God's given us in Christ. That's the greatest gift. That should drive us toward gratitude, toward humility, toward repentance, and toward generosity. Because God's already given us a gift far greater than everything that we could ever give back to him.